Well, there are maybe few things more frustrating than to suffer an unjust accusation. I'm sure that most of you have experienced that at some point in your life where someone um, prejudged your action or, or misjudged your motives for doing something. Um, I, one of the vivid ones, I don't know why this one sticks out in my mind so much, but it had to do with my mother who's passed away now. So um, it's, it's, you know, this, this might sound negative towards her, but um, it, it's, it's not intended to me because I love my mother. She's passed away, so it's, it's, it's not anything I don't think that she, she doesn't understand where I'm coming from now well, uh, in heaven. So, um, but I, I remember I was uh, a little bit early on in my ministry here. I was going to seminary at the same time. Uh, I started pastoring here about 16 years ago, and I started seminary at the same time. So 16 years ago, uh, I think maybe I was a, a year or two into the pastorate. My mom, I don't know that she ever wanted a, a preacher for a son, but I think, you know, she's... she's you know, she was a Christian woman, and I think the idea wasn't necessarily a bad one, that I wasn't a lawyer or doctor or engineer or something. So she was, she was relatively for that, and I think as, as, as I started to do it, she became more and more for it and behind me and supportive of that. So uh, there was a, a, a weekend, and I, I want to say it was when we were doing this camp at Wainola, where oftentimes you'd miss a Sunday, Right, like you'd be at camp for that Sunday. So whatever the case was, uh, I, I I missed that Sunday at church, but I had a good reason for it. Well, my mom, um, she was very upset that I missed church because you know you're you're not just a Christian, but you're also a pastor. What kind of example does it set if you don't go to church? Even if it's for like a church ministry thing, they need you there. Why weren't you there? And I remember just getting this tremendous like guilt trip about not being at the church, and it almost didn't matter that I had a legitimate reason to be away, I still felt very guilty, but also very indignant. Like, I, I'm not trying to be a bad pastor. I, I know I should be there. And um, she, she really laid it on super thick. I remember being there kind of at the door um, and, and just being like so upset, like this is so unfair, this is so unjust, like they totally are okay with me missing one. To be a Christian doesn't mean you have to be at church every single Sunday anyway. And all these things are going through my head, um, but she just kept like questioning my salvation. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I go to church, I'm a pastor, I'm going to seminary. And I just remember going straight for the throat of like, you call yourself a Christian. And I was like, Ma. <laughs> You can't, you can't do that. You can't just go for that because I, I, I know that I'm a Christian not based on my works anyway. Like all the things that you might say if someone is um, nitpicking, let's say, your faith over something small. And I just remember being so frustrated about that, so upset by that. And part of it is it's very easy to make you question your salvation in a sense. Like if someone says, you know, Christians do X, Y, Z, you can agree with that. Well, are you doing X, Y, and Z all the time? I mean, you're always thinking Christian things? Well, well, no. So are you even a Christian? Like, it's very easy to make that step. But, you know, when things calm down and, you know, it was in a way like I didn't need to be as upset by it, nor did my mom. My mom apologized. And, uh, and <laughs> so this, this is the part like where I just, you know, you got to show grace and, and love her. She's like, I, I can't help it. <laughs> She's like, I can't help it. I'm Korean. That's what she said. Um, I'm like, you know, because you're Korean, you think you just go around questioning people's salvation because they miss, you know, one day at church. 
And she was, she was apologetic, and she felt bad, and, you know, it, it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't that big a deal. But I just remember being so offended that my faith was being questioned. And we come to a similar scenario. And in a way, I wish I had looked at this, you know, text before getting into that ordeal with my mom, because I think I would have found a much more God-glorifying way to navigate when your faith is being questioned or when you're under suspicion for not being the kind of faithful person that, that you are. Or even if you are wrong, to know how to deal with someone who's making an accusation against your faith. I think here in Joshua 22, it's, it's sort of an odd narrative um, because we've just come off of, if you remember, um, Many, many, almost 10 chapters of essentially a list of city names and geography, which are more or less summed up in that map on the back of your handout. Um, And so here we have this interesting segue into Joshua's final words and comments before he dies. So this serves as kind of a, a bridge in terms of the story to go from the ending where we had, again, last week, we talked about kind of this Uh, happily ever after, or at least you want it to be happily ever after for the Israelites, to Joshua's essentially call and rebuke to the people. So what happens in between there is this chapter. Now, um, it's a long chapter. I want to kind of read through it um, as we go through it. So I'm not going to read it all at once, um, but just take it in chunks. And I think we can get through the whole thing. But uh, essentially you have the suspicion of faith and the reconciliation of faith in this chapter. And hopefully it will serve us to understand how we can deal with uh, when people um, bring accusations and suspicions against our faith and how we can be reconciled to those who uh, might think negatively of us. So we'll begin in the first uh, six verses. It kind of sets up the situation. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of Yahweh your God. And now Yahweh your God has given you uh, has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you to love Yahweh your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Well, what's going on here? Well, you remember, if you look at your map, that the promised land really is mainly made up of those lands west of the Jordan. So if you look on there, you see a, a, a sea to the north. That's the Sea of Galilee. You see the Dead Sea, and you see the Jordan River connecting them. And so most of the inheritance, as you'll see, is on the west side between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. On the east side, however, you see that Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh had set up some lands and inheritance there. Well, what had happened is as the people came into the promised land, they approached the promised land from the east, and Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh said, this land is fine. We'll be totally happy to reside here 
and you guys go ahead and split up all the land to the west of the Jordan. Well, the Israelites, the other nine and a half tribes said, well, that's, that sounds okay, but we're about to go battle in this land against the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Amorites and so on. So the tribes to the east, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan said, we will send 40,000 of our men to back you in battle. And they will fight with you, and they're, they're not going to come home. They're not going to return to us until the land is at peace. And so this is the promise that we're making. So Moses, this is an agreement that they had made with Moses back when Moses was, was alive. And now Joshua is releasing them of their duty. So this is after maybe seven to up to 14 years of warring. So this was a significant time that they had committed. And it, it could be that <clears throat> these 40,000 troops legitimately didn't ever go back to their homelands for that amount of time. Or, and I think this is more reasonable because this is what most armies do, is the, the body of troops was there and committed the 40,000. But there might have been some rotation so that people could go back, check in on you know Danny or whatever, and then come back out. That's how most armies tend to work. It it doesn't matter because Joshua is saying that you kept your word, whether, you know, it was necessary that each one of those soldiers never even set foot on the other side of the Jordan until this, um, this campaign was over uh, or not. Joshua is saying you've, you've kept it. And that's all we really need to know is you've kept your word and Joshua is commending them to an equal rest as the other nine and a half tribes had settled there west of the Jordan. Now, in chapter, or uh, in verse 7, now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, which is on the east of the Jordan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. So you look on your map and you see Manasseh's in two places. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver and gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of Yahweh through Moses. So um, we see essentially that because they were equal participants, in the conquest, so they were equal participants in the spoils of war. And again, this is frankly just Joshua acknowledging the sacrifice that they made was equal to that of their brothers. They weren't half in. They weren't thinking, you know what, this is not even our land. Why are we fighting so hard for it? Our land is over there. We've already conquered it on the east of the Jordan. But they weren't half-hearted about it. They, they didn't give less effort because they were already, you know, got their claim. Joshua is fully acknowledging that they fought as if it was their land. They, they participated fully with their brothers in the campaign, and their sacrifice was worth them also taking of the spoils. <clears throat> so I think it's important just how much emphasis Joshua gives here. It's, it's, the conviction or the the kind of uh, application I saw in this was, you know, it's very easy to tell people the Lord sees and the Lord, the Lord rewards, you know, you, you toil and maybe no one ever gives you a pat on the back or an attaboy or at a girl, but you know, God sees and God, God knows. Well, I was thinking, 
uh, as a pastor at least, I shouldn't think like that. <laughs> you know, like, you know, not tell anyone, you know what, you did all that the Lord required of you. That was wonderful. You know, Joshua is being very clear to give them a, a commendation, to tell them you did what you said you were going to do. You did good. So I was thinking, I, I need to be more um, encouraging and acknowledge the faithfulness of others and recognize faithfulness when I see it. it. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It's just to acknowledge what God is doing in your life and that they, uh, that you and I are are, are trying to do what the Lord commanded. So uh, I saw that encouragement. In any case, we start off really good here in Joshua 22, because we're seeing that Joshua is able to recognize faithfulness, to reward faithfulness. And that's the kind of people I think we all should be as well. Now he gives them a warning though. When you get over there, make sure that you keep all that the Lord commanded. So we'll come back to that in a second, but it's not as if Joshua didn't um, assume you know, you were faithful in the past, you're always going to be faithful in the future. No, you can acknowledge someone's present acts of faithfulness while also warning them, you know, keep on, keep it on, keep on holding to the faith. So we're going to see what happens next. We'll see the faithfulness of these two and a half tribes doubted. And when they came, verse 10, to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now Shiloh at that time was essentially, you could call it the capital or the center of the promised land. Um, It's going to be shifted to Jerusalem later. But at this time, Shiloh was kind of the the center of of their religious and civil life, okay? So they're gathering up the army because they heard that just before they crossed over, they built this gigantic altar there. And they didn't know anything else about it. But why... (laughs) Why is their reaction so, uh, it seems, antagonistic and hostile to the idea that they built such a jimungus altar to them? Why was it offensive? Well, for one thing, it was huge, all right? So when they made it that big, it's meant to be noticed. But what are altars for typically? Well, an altar in that time was typically for sacrificing animals. You know, you'd have sacrifices to show um, you know, that God has blessed you, you want to give an af- you sacrifice an animal or you sacrifice some of your, your harvest. Oh, things are going bad, you sacrifice an animal. Oh, I've sinned, I need to confess, you sacrifice an animal. So an altar was a very important place for uh, really a lot of the religions, but especially, of course, for the, the Israelite people. Now, what's the problem, though? There's only one place that they are supposed to offer sacrifices. If you go back to Leviticus 17, 8 and 9, or you can just listen, but Leviticus 17, 8 and 9, God gives this command about the sacrifices. And you shall say to them, 
any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to Yahweh. And again, when you see capital L-O-R-D like that, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. That man shall be cut off from his people. Now, the tent of meeting, I think we talked about this before. Uh, Remember that the Israelites would worship at a tabernacle. And the tabernacle at the time of Joshua was essentially like a big tent complex where the priests would offer sacrifice to God. So that's what he's talking about here. Where are you supposed to offer sacrifices to the one true God of Israel? There, at this tent, at this altar, specifically set up for this. And what was the consequence if you did not do it should be cut off, meaning you'll be killed. So what did Joshua tell Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh? He said, don't, right, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded you, right? So what does this look like when you build this gigantic altar And it's not even on your side of the Jordan. It's on like our side of the Jordan. Why is that a cause for alarm? Well, it sort of looks like maybe you're disobeying. Leviticus 17, 8 and 9, as well as other similar passages. But essentially, it looks like you're setting up a separate altar. You know, the only time that the Israelites worshipped at other altars was when they were worshipping pagan gods. The gods of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites. Gods who received sacrifice, human sacrifices and child sacrifices and who were capricious and evil and wicked. So the worst possible interpretation is, you told us, you stood here with Joshua telling you, make sure you keep all the commandments of God. And as soon as you're outside of earshot, you built this gigantic altar, and then you hopped over to the, the other side of the Jordan, and it seems like you're, you're kind of putting this right in our face. So now you have the faithfulness of the Reubenites, the Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, doubted. I mean, Joshua just spent a lot of time and effort saying your faithfulness was commendable. So we have now attention. And now we have an investigation. The third act of this chapter is their faithfulness then is investigated. Okay, so it's faithfulness recognized, faithfulness doubted, faithfulness investigated. Verse 13, then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. Every one of them, the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben and people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, thus says the whole congregation of Yahweh. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following Yahweh by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against Yahweh? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of Yahweh, that you too must turn away this day from following Yahweh? And if you too rebel against Yahweh today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, 
Pass over into Yahweh's land where, the, where Yahweh's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against Yahweh or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of Yahweh our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Now, what is good about their response here? Well, to be fair, they gathered for war, but did they immediately come conquering to the other side of the Jordan and just, you know, uh, declare war immediately? No, they prepared for war, but what they did is sent a delegation of people to figure out the facts. It was Phineas, who we'll talk about in just a second, and then 10 leaders of each of the other tribes um, of Israel. Remember, there's 12 tribes total. You got, you got nine and a half, including Manasseh. So technically, there's 10 tribes on the side, and you have three tribes on the other side. I know it doesn't quite add up math- mathematically, but you get it, right? So he brings 10 leaders and Phineas, and they're there not as a raiding party, of course not. They're there to investigate and figure out what's going on. So, and this, is, this was also commanded, by the way. So uh, while in Leviticus 17, it's if you offer a sacrifice somewhere else, you know, you need to be cut off from the people. Uh, to be fair, there was a certain process to that. So Deuteronomy 13, in verse 12 through 15, they say, if you hear in one of your cities, which Yahweh your God is giving you to dwell there. So this is before they entered the promised land. If you hear that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their cities, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. So what's the process there? Do you just go based off of hearsay? Because it says that they heard of this imposing altar. They hadn't gone seen it. They hadn't gone talking to anyone. What did they need to do? To investigate it, to search it out, to make sure it's true before you just bring the hammer of justice against a person or a people. So it is good that they, and it was godly that they investigated the matter without just immediately jumping to war. Now, you might ask, what would have been, what could have been better about their response? Because I read it and I think there's a presumption of guilt here, isn't there? I mean, isn't it innocent until proven guilty? Well, I think generally, yes. And I could actually point to different passages in the Bible where generally you have a um, innocent until proven guilty kind of mindset. But to be fair, and I'm not, the, the narrator isn't saying where, whether this is good or bad per se, uh, but to be fair, they just have had a kind of a bad experience <laughs> of Israelites screwing it up and causing a lot of damage to the people. So you can understand why they might be a little bit presumptuous of guilt, but did they act on, on it? No, they hadn't. So even if they did, there was still an innocent until proven guilty even though they're kind of making the accusation that they're guilty. But again, um, <laughs> there had been times where they were punished for not looking out for the sins of others. And, and that's what Phineas brings up. He brings up the sin at Peor. 
And, and this is something that Phineas himself was directly involved in. You can go to, to Numbers 25 if you want to hear the story, but I'll sum up. All right. So Numbers 25 comes after Balaam, the false prophet, was unable to curse the people of Israel. And if you remember, Balaam famously was rebuked by his donkey. Remember that story of the false prophet who's going on his way on his donkey to being a curse to Israel and his donkey stops because there's an angel that Balaam can't see and uh, the, do- the donkey's mouth is opened by the Lord and basically says, are you dumb? There's an angel right here. I'm actually saving your life, right? So um, Balaam is not able to curse the people. So he has uh, this really insidious, sinister plan that is more effective in Numbers 25. At Peor, which is a, a town or a region, he introduced the Israelite men to the lovely ladies of Midian who are pagan and who worship Baal, which was a wicked you know, pagan god of that region. And so what did the men do of Israel? They went after these women at Peor and they became uh, idolatrous and worshiped Baal. So God brought judgment upon them. Um, and a part of this judgment was that 24,000 of them ended up perishing. It says due to a plague, but actually God says for the people to judge their neighbor, to like bring a sword against their neighbor. So the plague might be like a plague of uh, a metaphorical way of talking about how they needed to be wiped out, right? And so 24,000 of them were wiped out. Amongst the first to be wiped out was a man who was flaunting his pagan wife at the tent of meeting, where the people were weeping over the sin of idolatry. And this man has the audacity to bring and flaunt his pagan wife. And Phineas, (laughs) the same Phineas here, takes a spear and kills both of them. All right? There, because they were being so flagrant. And and some commentators suggest they were doing some very naughty things just to rub it in everyone's face. So he kills them for their uh, audacious display of, of pagan uh, worship. And so he kills him, and for that he kind of gets this commendation. And that's why he is now this uh, figurehead at the time of, of Joshua. We've talked a little bit about Phineas before, but that's where he sort of makes a name for himself. So Phineas brings that up. Do you remember what happened when we got all tangled up with the pagans, with the idol worshipers, with the Midianite women? And so here Phineas is is leading this investigation. He's probably the one speaking. And so when he says in verse 17 that they had not yet cleansed themselves of the sin of Peor, it's because Phineas knew that they, there was still within the Israelites this temptation to idolatry lurking amongst the people. And, and how do I know that? Because that's what Joshua is going to call out just a little bit later. So it's there. We haven't cleansed ourselves from it. And here you are making this gigantic altar you know, explain yourself. He, he also brings up, of course, the sin of Achan there in verse 20, which is from Joshua 7. We talked a lot about that already. I won't rehash that entire sermon. But if you recall, there's basically one man's sin caused the defeat of the Israelite armies at Ai because of one man disobeying the command of the Lord. And so Phineas has a concern, not only for Reuben and Gad and Manasseh for their own soul's sake, But what he's also seen is that God 
could bring a, a chastening and a judgment upon all of them. Well, is it that they are being punished, let's say, for the sin of someone else? No, they're being punished for not watching out for their brothers, for not calling out something that they saw in them, for letting it happen. And this is a recurring theme, not just in Israel's history, but in the Bible in general. I mean, God judges individuals. He doesn't judge you based on what your dad did or what your son did. You will rise and fall on your own sins. But part of your sin could be that you allowed sin that you saw happening to flourish. Or, as Paul puts it, this concept of a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And, and when Paul brings that up, he is talking specifically about allowing a sin in the church without bringing it to light, without calling out the person that's sinning so blatantly. It's the man who's sleeping with his stepmother, right? And the church was just letting it happen. And Paul says, if you allow that to happen, it will spread throughout the church because what other people are going to think is, oh, they don't, they don't care if you do that. Well, what I'm doing is not as bad as sleeping with, you know, my, my stepmother, so yeah, I'm just, doing, I'm just cheating my taxes a little bit. You see, as soon as you let the mentality of sin you see and know happening to continue unfettered, you're now responsible, not for that person's sin, but for seeing a sin and allowing it to flourish. And that's something we all share responsibility for. So while God does judge individual sins, part of us being judged individually for our sin is whether we see sin happening amongst uh, our our congregation amongst our brothers and sisters, not out in the world because they're always sinning, right? (laughs) But here, letting it happen, well, that's on us because you're sending the message when there's a sin that obvious that that's okay. And as soon as that happens, that will spread. I mean, we've we've dodged some bullets at this church, but not everyone. We've seen it sometimes happen where a, a sin unchecked starts to plant seeds in other people's minds. So that's the kind of idea that Phineas is worried about is that we're going to be held guilty for knowing something is happening and shutting our mouths and not saying anything. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about Achan. Uh, But even if Phineas may have had a reason to presume guilt, or at least have a little bit of a, of a come at it from a negative disposition, right? Like, why are you, why are you doing this? Don't you remember what happened? Um, What he does do in investigating this sin and asking the questions or even making these accusations to which they must respond, notice that he does plead with them and he offers them the opportunity to repent, even to open up their own doors. Did you, did you catch that? He tells them, if, in verse 19, if the land of your possession is unclean, in other words, you got a bunch of pagan, idolatrous people over there, you know what? Come back over to this side of the Jordan. Pass over into Yahweh's land where Yahweh's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. It's not all just, you guys are the worst. I can't believe it. You just, you know, go off and you're worshiping. There is a sympathy or a pity or a compassion 
that says, we don't want you to be in this position. I'm assuming you're in this position, but I'm not here just to, to slam you for it. I want you to repent. And if, if, if it means that we need to be imposed upon or put out, then no, we'll make room for all of you. Because better for, for us to be inconvenienced, us to be put out and you know, crammed together, and they weren't, you know, over here on the, the west side of the Jordan, than for you to be mixed up with all those pagans and idolaters. So there is still, in this investigation and even accusation of their faithfulness, still a heart of, 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 uh, of pity, of compassion, of desiring their repentance. And again, I think there's something to say for us Maybe you're right to accuse someone of doing some wrong to you. Maybe you're always right about this, and that guy's always wrong about it. But do we always seed that conversation, that discussion, that investigation, that accusation with an opportunity to repent? Are we pleading with them still to do the right thing and giving them a chance to do it? Because, you know, there's ways where you can um, tell someone, well, you can make this up to me, and you set the bar like way up here so that it's impossible for them to ever be right with you anyway, and you're kind of just putting them in a darned if they do, darned if they don't situation. No, what, what Phineas is saying is, look, anything we can do to help you to repent and show your repentance, if we can open a door for that, if we can make room, if we need to make room for you, we will. That's a real heart of reconciliation in the midst of an accusation, is if, you, if you're willing to give them a chance, a real chance to repent, even maybe at the sacrifice of yourself. I just, I just know sometimes in you know, marriage counseling and, and other things and family counseling, it's like, well, I, I, I will, you know, I'll, I'll forgive them, but they have to do like this. And the bar is so high, just they're never going to clear that. And, and it's never with any like sacrifice or, or willingness on your part to help them, to bring them to the right place. That's not Phineas's heart. As much as he's really concerned that they're going wayward, there's still a desire in his heart. No, but we want to be united. We want to be together. We want this to work out. So we have their faithfulness investigated. Fourthly, we have faithfulness vindicated. Am I, am I on the right track here? Is that number four? Or am I number one, two, three? Yes, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Faithfulness is vindicated, starting verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, the mighty one, God, Yahweh, he knows. And let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against Yahweh, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following Yahweh. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may Yahweh himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For Yahweh has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in Yahweh. So your children might make our children cease to worship Yahweh. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. 
and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of Yahweh in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in Yahweh. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of Yahweh, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against Yahweh and turn away this day from following Yahweh by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of Yahweh our God that stands before his tabernacle. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they take the accusation seriously. They repeat a title for God that declares his power and sovereignty. Mighty one, God, Yahweh, mighty one, God, Yahweh. He knows that Israel itself, no, they had nothing to hide. And they offer their reasoning, their concern, because in a way, they're not technically in the promised land, at least the portion that God directed them to dwell in and rule from. The promised land is actually, the whole thing is a very large territory. It's way beyond what's on your, your map there. But um, there's a special sense in which that land that you see there was particular for the Israelites to dwell in and sort of rule the whole promised land from. We think we talked about that previously. Well, the problem is the Jordan River kind of makes this sort of natural line. And just as we, we do as people, there would be people on this side of the line and that side of the line. And what are you going to start to do? Like if I just drew a line here, you know, right down here, right? It said nothing, right? You'd immediately start looking at the guys on this side of the line. You, know, you guys over here, immediately, what's, why, why, why are they on that side? Why are they on this side? So that's what they're concerned about is that the people would, uh, their children, not them, but their children and their children's children might see that river and see a boundary between better and worse, between more faithful and less faithful. And so what did they do? They thought, well, we're going to make kind of a, a duplicate of the altar where we worship Yahweh from, but not to actually offer any offerings or sacrifices to it, but as a way to say, we know, we remember the only place to worship God is at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. That's the only place we can go. And this is to signify we remember. We know that. Don't, don't count us as second-class citizens. Don't forget us. Don't, don't think that we're your enemies or that we are different people. We're all brothers. We're all from one family. <clears throat> is that concern Legitimate? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, like I said, if I just drew a line, you know, just be controversial, you know, just drew a line. And if I just said arbitrarily, you over here, you over here, you, you coming through the door, you over here, you over here, you'd immediately think something's up. You'd immediately be suspicious of the guys on the, the other side of the line. So, yeah, that's human nature. So they... Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> you should be. <laughs> fair point, fair point, fair point. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it is, it was risky when they first asked for it, right? When they first came to the land and said, oh, we don't even want to cross the Jordan, right? That sounded suspicious. We don't even want to cross the Jordan. That's why Moses had to make them swear that they would supply the manpower for the battle. And so that's why Joshua, it makes a big deal about the fact that they did keep their oath there. But you realize it is kind of sketchy to say, 
oh, um, you know, this land before, you know, we, we're, we'd rather settle here. Well, you know, there's a whole big campaign and fight we got to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll supply the manpower. You know, for sure we will. I mean, that can sound a little like selfish. So yeah, they, they were setting themselves up a little bit for that kind of uh, potential controversy. But again, to their credit, they did come through. That's the whole point of the first part of Joshua 22. This is just a small comment, uh, uh, application. One commentator said, um, and I, I just, this is a real quick application. I just wanted to, to put this in. He said, one of the trage- tragedies of denominational and confessional isolation in present-day Christianity is that it is the cause of suspicion and misunderstanding. What does that mean? Well, sometimes we draw certain lines theologically, a Jordan River, you could say. That doesn't mean you're not a part of Christendom. It's just, hey, we have a certain distinctive. We view the end times prophecies this way, and you view them this way. So there's a little bit of a Jordan River there, but it doesn't mean we're not brothers and sisters, but just the very existence that you have, uh, existence of a line, of, of, of a difference between us. Well, if you stay on your side of the Jordan long enough, you might start to get suspicious of the people on the other side, Right? So it happens. Again, it even happens in, in churches. And we got to be careful about being so suspicious all the time of people that are not just exactly like us, you know, theologically or in terms of Christendom. Now, I'm not trying to get on a whole sidetrack of what is essential Christian doctrine. Of course, you can't ever let that go. Um, but there's plenty of things that are even tertiary, you know, way down on the priority list that people make a qualifier for whether you're a Christian or not. And we ought to be careful of that. In any case... I wanted to ask a question like this. You know, do you believe Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh? And why do you believe them? You know, I read it to you. But why do you, what, what to you represents the earnestness of those two and a half tribes? That's an open question. Do you believe them? And if so, if you don't know how this ends, if so, what is it about what they say here in verses 21 through uh, 29, that is the persuasive thing to you that makes you believe that they're being earnest about this. It's curious. I know the right answer, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, Inez. I don't know. No, no, I'm, I'm teasing about that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for you, the, the legitimacy of their rationale, it, it made sense. So what they said, it made sense. It's not like they kind of gave some, you know, crazy ans- uh, answer. Oh, well, you know, this, you know, 
these people had a great sale on bricks and mortar, and we thought, oh, you know, it'd be a waste to, you know. They didn't come up with some crazy story. They gave a really legitimate uh, reason for why they did such a thing, born out of a, a concern of their hearts. So that seems pretty indicative of earnestness. What else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I think for that, I know part of me because it says you know this is an altar of imposing size, so it does sound it's like big. But it, they don't quite justify the reason for the size, except it it was to mirror the one at at I think it was at Shiloh at that time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think kind of it's like it wasn't meant to be hidden. Like if they're gonna hide it, they would have made it smaller for sure. But they were for sure gonna get, you know, people like to to, to say something about it, making it so big that it was it was going to get attention. So in a way, like if they're trying to hide it, they wouldn't have made it so so big. I suppose. Yeah, Vivian. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and let the vengeance of Yahweh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Ines. That's the goal here is in any conflict to to come to a place of reconciliation. And and here, and you guys have pretty much mentioned all these, but there there might be more, but there these are the four elements of their earnest response. Their believable earnest response. This is how I needed to conduct myself when my mom is, you know, slinging accusations against me. This is how I need to respond. The first one was obviously um, uh, bringing to the front God. You know, this is about God. This is about his glory. This is about all of us being subject to him. It puts everything into perspective if, if we say we all need to stand before God one day. And that's what they do when they start off, you know, uh, Lord, mighty God, Yahweh, is they are 
trying to say that, that we understand that we're all standing before a holy God and who can stand before a holy God? I have an incentive to tell the truth because I know God is judging me. So I better tell the truth. I better be honest about this. So that's the first element of an earnest response is that uh, we understand our accountability to God. Secondly, is a willingness to embrace the consequences if they are indeed wrong. What do they say? Don't spare us this day. What do they say? Then let Yahweh have vengeance upon us if we have done these things. And so a willingness to accept the consequences of your actions, I think, always speaks well of an earnest response. When you say, I know what... If, if it's true of what you're saying about me, I know what the consequences should be, and I know I deserve them. So acknowledging that, being willing to embrace the consequences if you are indeed wrong. Thirdly, is presenting a legitimate reason for what you did. You know, maybe, you're in, maybe it came off wrong, but I think it's always helpful to say why you did something, even if it blew up in everyone's face. I mean, maybe it wasn't the greatest idea to build this gigantic altar. Talk about that in a second. Maybe they should have talked to Phineas and, you know, coordinated better with the other tribes. You know, we got this idea, you know, just in case like our children don't get along or we start to get discrimination, would it be okay? I mean, we'd love to collaborate on building this gigantic altar there, right? So, but their intention at least, or their rationale, I think it's helpful to see, even if the execution of the idea really messed up, I think it does help us to see their heart and their attitude. And was it a God-honoring one? Or was it something that legitimately uh, is a concern that I would share too? Even if we're not talking necessarily about like godly theological things, but if it's a if it's something in your heart that I can sympathize with, yeah, you know what? If I was in your shoes, I would think the same way. Then, then I, I think we can say that's a, a good rationale. Um, so it's helpful to present. Thirdly, uh, in an earnest defense or an earnest response to accusation, present a legitimate reason for why you did what you did. And then lastly is to reiterate what you know is right. In other words, if the accuser is saying something right, agree with it. So they are agreeing that if we did do this, you'd be 100% right. It isn't that, but I, I, I know why you're bringing this up to me, because if it was true, I agree. 100% you, you'd be right, and I would deserve this. It's sort of part of being willing to embrace the consequences, but it's essentially um, reiterating that you know is right. Because I say it that way because they might have been wrong about the nature of the accusation too. Like that it actually wasn't a command of God. You know, what if God had not said, you can't build another altar to worship God? So they'd have been mistaken. So you need to agree or reiterate with what is right. And if it just so happens that your accuser is right about it, then you'd be agreeing with them. And I think it's helpful in an earnest kind of defense of, of being accused of something to say, you're right about this. And it's not true, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think if you are able, and there might be other elements to it, it's just those are the four that, that, that stood out uh, to me as far as when I think of like, you know, how should I have addressed my mom? I know it's a silly one. It's just the one that like really stands out in my mind. Like if I was willing to say, you know, mom, 
you're right. Like a, a Christian really should try to make church a priority. Now, the Bible doesn't say, I know, that you have to be there every Sunday, but you're right, Mom. Like I should make it a priority. It should be something that I'm demonstrating in my actions and words that I think church is important. And if I said something kind of flippant about church and church attendance, then I apologize. And you're right to rebuke me. And it is something that is not a good example. But, you know, you hurt my feelings by (laughs) questioning my salvation. And I feel like that's not a gracious way to respond. So I agree with all that. But here's why I am upset by it. You give your rationale for it, why you're upset by it. I think if, if we understand this, we're going to respond to suspicions of our faithfulness a little bit better. Because, of course, as it turns out, their faithfulness is restored, or at least the view of their faithfulness is restored at the end of, the, at the end of this. Now, again, uh, let me just add, I don't know if this was the best thing that they could have done. <laughs> you know, make this gigantic. The text isn't saying that that was a good thing or a bad thing to do. It, it's simply... Uh, By the results of it, we know how they conducted this interaction or uh, accusation or investigation well. I mean, we know that because of the results, but the the text doesn't necessarily say whether this was a good idea or a bad idea or not. I I think like, yeah, they should have talked to, (laughs) they should have, they should have talked it over first. It just, it just, why even, you know, get to a point where your brother's are arming themselves to have war with you. I mean, that could have been settled maybe a little bit sooner. But, um, you know, <laughs> I think we can acknowledge, um, as, the, as the Israelites do, that this was a no harm, no foul situation. Verse 30. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that Yahweh is in our midst. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against Yahweh. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of Yahweh. Then Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. So, of course, they accept the explanation, their view of Reuben and Gad and the Manassites and their faithfulness is restored in their eyes. And what are the results? The first one is very precious. Notice that Phineas says, now today we know that Yahweh is in our midst. What does that tell you about reconciliation and peace between brothers and sisters? Where does God dwell? He dwells in the midst of those who are at peace with each other. When conflict gets resolved in a godly way, God is in the midst of it. What a precious thought. What a, what, what, a, what a statement to make about where God is. God is where people who are at peace with one another dwell. That's where God wants to be. And this is in a way the essence of Matthew 18, 20. It's often misquoted to talk about like prayer meetings and things. It's where two or three are gathered in my name. There will I be in the midst of them. That's actually a statement about witnesses 
that are being gathered to testify either to vindicate a person accused of sin or condemn a person accused of sin. God is in the midst of both. You know, he's in the midst of judgment, of course, but he's also in the midst of peace. And, and really, Matthew 18, 20 is, is, is about the sentiment. Now, you want God to dwell amongst us not as, an, as a deliverer of judgment, but as one who is in the midst dwelling among those who are at peace with each other. It's a beautiful picture, and I'm, I'm so glad Phineas put it this way, is, is, is to say our peace with each other is, is so good and holy, like God can dwell there. You know, it's that kind of idea. So very precious. That's the first result. The second result is that God is blessed in verse 33. When, when the rest of the people heard it, they praised God. They blessed God. This is great. We were, we were thinking we might have to war against our brothers. I mean, civil war is not a pretty thing. But thankfully, it wasn't like we thought at all. And there was uh, joy and happiness and unity over this. Colossians 3.12, we'll start to wrap up here. <clears throat> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians 3.12. <clears throat> Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The cross is a symbol of unity for us. It is the altar of witness that should unite all Christians, even though you might be on this side of the Jordan River and I might be on this side. We might have a little bit different view about end times prophecy or the gifts of the Spirit and all these things. But if we can agree on the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and Son of Man, that he lived a perfect life in the flesh, that he bore our sins upon himself and died physically on the cross, was buried and rose again in the flesh, conquering sin and death, vindicating that he is God and that he did forgive sins, then we can have fellowship. If that can be the thing that unites us, we can have peace. Even though we, every church has its uniqueness, their own distinctives and, and all those things, but Hopefully the altar where we all worship is at the foot of the cross. And I'll say this then, whenever there's any conflict amongst believers, <clears throat> true believers, there should always be an ability to find peace and reconciliation at that altar of the cross as well. How can you have something against someone when you're both staring at the, the blood of Jesus being shed for your sins. When you look at a, a holy God in whom all of us fall short and should be ashamed and humbled by our own wickedness, how could we then go and have a conflict with someone else who's also seeing the same cross and pleading with the same Lord? Just like they were imagining the, the Reubenites and the Gadites that if our children were ever to find conflict with each other, they were to look at this altar and say, no, we're the same. We're one. We're united here. We worship the same God. How can two Christians be in conflict, you know, and, and, come, and not be able to come to the cross and find peace and unity and agreement? How does the story 
end. What ends up happening to those tribes on the east of the Jordan? Again, same commentator tells us this. Later history reveals that the Israelites living in Transjordan, that's the, the area to the east of the Jordan River, were subject to repeated attacks by enemy armies and that they were tempted to worship foreign de- deities. Ultimately, their land was taken from them and their few survivors were assimilated into the rest of Israel. In other words, what Phineas said, like, if you need to get away from those pagans, come, come here, we'll make room for you. And that ended up being the case. It's a little bit uh, bittersweet, but there was at least not a utter rejection of them when they came over. Hopefully there's a better story for us who call ourselves Christians and have put our faith in Christ, that we can find peace with each other uh, at the foot of the cross, that there's no, um, that we wouldn't allow suspicion to run rampant and guesses about people's sins and what they're struggling with, but rather that we would go. If we, we, we fear that someone has fallen to sin or if someone has sinned against us, that we'd go to them with that attitude. Of, of wanting to see them not be handed over to Satan, so to speak, but instead with an offer of repentance, with an open door of a willingness to see people reconciled would come. And that for the other person's part who is accused, the one who's under suspicion, for them to not be uh, affronted or offended, to give an earnest feedback, you know, acknowledging God, um, embracing the consequences if they're wrong, presenting a legitimate reason for their actions and, and reiterating what you know is right. So let's pray and then we will have our time of fellowship. If you have any questions about that, I'd love to chat about that over dinner. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. And in a way, these, um, these stories that speak to very real kinds of situations we face uh, personally or as a church and who, who here doesn't or hasn't ever been in a conflict with someone or had motives suspected or faith question. I thank you, Lord, that you, you show us many times, not just here, but many times uh, the way to reconciliation because that is your priority as well, um, is that you want people to be restored. We for sure want you to dwell in the midst of us and to be able to praise you, and that happens when we're united. So I pray, Lord, for our church that it would be the case where, where people have um, good relationships with each other, um, that there's not anything ever um, lingering or in the way, um, but rather a, a sense for God, you dwell here because we're people who are at peace with each other. So we pray for that, and we know it doesn't happen in the natural uh, man, so we know that's a supernatural work, so we entrust ourselves to, to you. I thank you for the time of fellowship around the table and for uh, dinner together as a church family. I pray that it would be blessing to each one of us. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all.